Theology for Ordinary People. Now, if you're visiting with us today, don't let that term put you off. Theology is just this idea of understanding God more. It's about, it means talking about God. And we've been using uh, this book from Alistair McGrath. He's a, he's a great theologian from Oxford. And um, you know, it's kind of our source material. And so some of his stuff that I'm bringing you comes from him. And it's always good to acknowledge that, by the way, when you use someone else's material to the extent that I have been. Um, but that's where that's coming from, and, and some of you have gone and bought his book, actually, and that's great to hear as well. But this is week five, and so far we've covered uh, creation, and uh, we've looked at understanding God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The next week, we're going to look at uh, the, the theology of salvation, and then after that, the church and the sacraments, and we're going to finish with heaven, which would be an exciting place to finish. Yeah, literally. <laughs> I think I've told that joke before. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Uh, This week, we're looking at the Trinity. And and let's be honest, the doctrine of the Trinity is probably one of the the most difficult areas of Christian theology. Who knows what I'm talking about? Yeah? Yeah. Oh, so only a few of us. Everyone else has got it. (laughs) Down pat. Now, if you're unsure about the Trinity, I I, I hope to be able to give you today, uh, you know, in a nutshell, what, what the Trinity is. And it's basically this, God, who is three in one, And you've heard that, you've probably sung that, and perhaps we need to kind of explore it and unpack it just a little bit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three separate persons, we say persons, but divine beings, each with a separate role, perfectly united together as God. That's it in a, in a, in a nutshell. So we could, we could finish there if you wanted to. But there's some very interesting things we need to talk about. And I know what you're thinking. How can we think of our one God as three? President Thomas Jefferson, he was the third president of the United States. He he was very critical of what he called the incomprehensible jargon of the Trinitarian arithmetic. But it's the doctrine of the Trinity that sets us apart as mainline orthodox believers and denominations from, from fringe groups from sects and cults that have a way of sounding Christians but aren't. You know, it's not the only thing that sets us apart or sets them apart, but it it often is. You know, because sometimes with these groups on the surface, everything can sound right. They're warm and friendly. They believe in Jesus as the Son of God. They seem to follow the Bible. But when you drill down into their doctrine of the Trinity, you know, if they have one, it reveals a separation from Orthodox Christian faith And I want you to see today that that can be a dangerous place to be. And sometimes we don't even know it until it's too late. And this is why I've been saying each week, it's important for us to understand and wrestle with our understanding of God. This is why we we do theology. It actually leads us into a better relationship with him. Many have gone before us who have done exactly that. And it's the community of believers together through the deep study of scriptures that has helped us to discount bad theology. You know, to uncover heresy and formulate doctrine that aligns with the fullness of, of Scripture. That's where we want to be, don't we? When it comes to interpreting the Bible and articulating doctrine, often it takes a lot of deep thought, discussion, and wrestling. You know, a common method used by theologians and students of the Bible, which is you and I, by the way, is a method called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. Who's heard of that one? 
a few people have. The name probably gives away who formulated it, but it's a method of theological understanding that's used um, quite universally, and it's a way for us to interpret you know, how we can understand God properly. And it's, there's four sources that Wesley suggested that we can use. Obviously, the first one is Scripture. You know, this one always comes first, and it has the highest authority from which all truth can be tested and should be tested, because we say it's divinely inspired. So if your doctrine doesn't align with Scripture, it's probably incorrect. The second thing is tradition. Wesley said that we should not undervalue traditional evidence. You know, tradition supplies a link through 2,000 years of history with Jesus and the apostles. You know, there's an unbroken chain of church leaders and theologians over those years that we can, we can go to. There is just a deep well of theological work. And we, we should go to that. The third thing that Wesley suggests uh, is reason. And he states quite clearly that without reason, you know, without using God gave us a brain, right, and common sense, we cannot understand the essential truths of Scripture. But reason must be assisted by the Holy Spirit if we're to understand because God is mysterious in many ways. And then the fourth thing is experience. Our experience confirms the truth of the Scriptures, you know, of our interpretation of them. We have assurance because of our experience. And it's okay to go to that as we do theology, as we work out doctrine. We have assurance because of our experience. You know, the blind man that Jesus healed said, one thing I know, here's what I know. I was blind and now I see. It's a very basic overview, but the reason I mentioned the Wesleyan quadrilateral is because it helps us understand why interpretation and understanding is not just always a simple exercise. Sometimes it requires more than you know, just our lounge room Bible studies even. We have, to, you know, we have to go to these things. To put it in its most simple form, God is not simple. You know, understanding him means we have to search the scriptures. We have to educate ourselves from what others have learned through tradition. We have to use reason, our brains, and find confirmation through experience, including our collective experience. Now, that's not to say the gospel is too hard for the ordinary person to understand. You know, if that was the case, then peace uh, with God might be out of reach for many. So the gospel is, gospel is actually uh, within the grasp of everybody. It's understanding the complexity of God that I'm talking about. Anyway, back to the Trinity. Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox theologians have all been involved in the exploration of this doctrine. And all land squarely in the camp that... There is no way out of this doctrine without being in error. In other words, any attempt to discount or drop the doctrine of the Trinity puts you out of alignment with scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. So why do we believe in the Trinity? You know, especially given that the, God, the, the scriptures don't contain the actual word, Trinity. If you go looking in your Bibles, you won't find this word. And yet, we say it's right at the core. It's important. And you won't find an explicit doctrine in your scriptures either. And on top of that, doesn't it seem to complicate how we believe and think about God? So why do Christians believe in the Trinity? So I'm just going to lift a paragraph straight out of McGrath's book right now because that was the easiest way for me to try and summarize what he was saying. Here's what he said. 
The best way to understand the basis of this seemingly baffling doctrine is to consider it as being the inevitable and legitimate way of thinking about God which emerges from a sustained engagement with the biblical witness to the words and works of God. The doctrine of the Trinity can be regarded as the outcome of a process of sustained and critical reflection on the pattern of divine activity revealed in Scripture and continued in Christian experience. This is not to say that Scripture contains or sets out an explicit doctrine of the Trinity. Rather, Scripture bears witness to a God who demands to be understood in a Trinitarian manner. Do you follow what he's saying? So since McGrath mentioned Scripture, let's start with two Scriptures which open up to this interpretation, to this doctrine. And we've used one already today, Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You heard the first one this morning when, when Pastor Adam baptized those, those five young people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the second is often used in prayer or as a benediction, and again, and as a blessing. And three names are given. Three. Now, it's true that you couldn't really claim this scripture as, as constituting an explicit doctrine of the Trinity, but they're definitely, they're strongly pointing to that, that, that direction. You know, Jesus himself wanted us baptizing, not just in his name. He didn't, when he left here, this was one of the last things he said. He didn't say Go and baptize in my name. He was very clear. You baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three obviously have power and authority, and they're clearly linked together in some way. We can, we can take that conclusion from what he's saying. In the same way, Second Corinthians, all three are, are elevated together. But while those verses point to the Trinity, you know, they're not definitive. McGraw goes on to say, and there's another quote here on the screen, the full doctrine of the Trinity lies in the overall pattern of divine activity to which the New Testament bears witness. So while we affirm that there's only one God, the Bible confirms a complex and rich vision of God, which is, let's be honest, it's difficult to put into words. And so over time, theologians have realized they really only have two options. Option one is they could set out a simple concept of God that's easy to grasp, but fails to do justice to the profound and a multifaceted witness to the God we read in the scriptures, or quite frank, or, or what we experience, actually. Well, the second thing they could have done, and they did, was remain faithful to the Bible, even if it's difficult. And that's the part of Orthodox Christian theology. That path in the New Testament reveals the closest of connections between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and we have to understand what that is. Time after time, the New Testament links together these three as a, as a greater whole. We see the Father who is revealed in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And this is the key. The totality of God's saving presence and power can only, it would seem, be expressed by involving all three. In other words, all three are equally needed. So let's look at some scripture, and we're just going to see some examples where all three uh, are mentioned. So I'm going to just do a quick run through some scriptures now. 1 Corinthians 12. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit 
is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. Three mentions together. 2 Corinthians 1. It is God who enables us, along with you, to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us and he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised us, all three together. Galatians 4, 6. And because we are his children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, prompting us to call out Abba, Father, all three together. 2 Thessalonians 2. All of us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers. As for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. We are always thankful that God chose you to be among the first to experience salvation, a salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you holy and through you, through your belief in the truth. He called you to salvation when we told you the good news. Now you can share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's again, all three doing roles that only God can do. Titus chapter 3, we mentioned this one last week. But when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us not because of the righteous things that we have done or had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. All three. First Peter chapter 1. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. All three, three distinct roles. You see the pattern? Only God can know Look at this scripture. Only God can know you before you were born. Only God can make you holy. Only God can cleanse you and make you right. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are doing these things. And they're all doing only what God can do. In the matters of salvation, the New Testament identifies clear roles for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet all three roles are roles that only God can do. It's these actions that clearly point to three distinct but not divided. We use the word persons. And so this is the clear doctrinal point. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct, each with unique roles, but perfectly united together as God, as one God. American theologian Catherine Lacugna puts it this way. The shape of Trinitarian doctrine is dictated by the pattern of redemption, Everything comes from God, is made known and, and redeemed through Jesus Christ and is consummated by the power of the Holy Spirit. They are working perfectly together. The three persons of the Trinity are distinct, yet not divided. You need to absorb this. The three persons of the Trinity are distinct, yet not divided. They are different, yet not separate or independent of each other. Our redemption is therefore the result of the three persons of the Godhead acting in distinct yet perfectly coordinated ways throughout human history without any loss of the total unity of the Godhead. So two other important parts before we move on here about the doctrine of the Trinity, just quickly, is that the three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. None are lower or higher than the other. All have always existed and always will. Now, it's easy to have an incorrect thinking or doctrine of the Trinity, and, and, and they call this modalism. 
It's a common error that we can fall into. The Trinity is not one person in three modes, okay? Not one person in three modes, not one person in three aspects. Very important. The Trinity is clearly three persons in one, not one in three modes. The Father is God, but he is not the Son or the Holy Spirit. The Son is God, but he is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, but he's not the Father or the Son. I know I'm kind of repeating myself a lot today, but it, sometimes it takes a while for us to, to understand and for it to sink in. I was trying to think of an example of modalism, and the closest I can get to is Superman. Okay? Because he was Clark Kent, and then he was Superman. He was one man in two modes, right? All he had to do was take off the glasses. <laughs> and he had a different mode. The Trinity... Our God is not like that. Another incorrect doctrine is that God has come in three different forms or modes over time. God the Creator, early, followed by God the Son, followed by God the Holy Spirit now. This is another form of modalism and, and it's an incorrect view, of, an incorrect biblical view of our God. I hope you've been able to follow me. Good. If the pastor can follow me, then we're... <laughs> as long as the youth pastor's with me, we're good. <laughs> you know, as I say each week, this is an introduction to theology. You can go so much deeper on this study beyond what I can do in 20 minutes. But what I hope you can do is walk out of here with a clearer understanding, if you didn't already have it. I hope you, there's some clarification. And if you need more... Come and see me, and I'll definitely try my best. But as we conclude today, there, there is another Trinitarian scripture that will help us to respond, because we can't talk about God and not respond. You know, sometimes when you're, in, when you're doing your, um, your Bible college, you can shut the textbook and think, good, I've done that chapter. But we've got to respond. We've got, we've got to apply what we're learning so here's the scripture I've got for us today. And the scene here is the room where Jesus has the Last Supper just before he goes to the cross. And he brings a very long but important message to his disciples, which in turn was also meant for us. And you can find this really long discourse in John 13 to 17, one of my favorites. But in chapter 16, Jesus talks about how he will send the Holy Spirit. And here's the words he said. He, as in the Spirit, will bring me glory by telling you Whatever he receives from me, all that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. Did you keep track? <laughs> but there's a lot going on here. And what I see is our triune God as being a very generous God. He is a God who gives. He doesn't come to you empty-handed. He brings gifts. Jesus says the Father shares with the Son, who shares with the Spirit, who shares with his disciples, and that includes us. The Trinity shares amongst each other and amazingly extends that same generosity to us. You know, the mutual love within the Trinity does not turn Father, Son, and Spirit inward, creating like a clique, but outwards to creation and primarily to us, his human creation, 
The point I'm making is that God invites human beings into generous, Trinitarian love. Now, I've used this example before, but in 2015, there was, there was a group of young adults. We were in America. We were in New York City. We'd just arrived the day before, and uh, we decided it was on a Saturday night. Saturday night. We arrived Sunday morning. We're going to go to church, and it's deep in Brooklyn. Now, anyone been into Brooklyn before? A few hands have. Nate was with me. And, and so we're talking about uh, it's right in the Brownsville area. And if you know that area, it's, it's, it's rough, right? It's tough. We didn't know at the time. <laughs> so we were, we were these, this row of white faces in this all African-American church. But it was an experience. And boy, did they welcome us. There was hugs. Nate wasn't too happy about that. But there was hugs. And singing, even directly to us, it was weird. And we were invited up the front. And, and, you know, the church secretary ducked out and she bought all this food for us that we could share post-service. But you couldn't help but feel generous. I'm going to use the word Trinitarian love. You know, extended from the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit to the disciples and we send it out to others. You know, I experienced the same thing when I was in Thailand visiting churches in small remote villages with compassion, generous, Trinitarian love, people who had nothing, who wanted to just give and give and give and give and give. They didn't know me, and yet it felt like they did. Our lives, relationship, and mission should be shaped by and reflect the Trinity, generous, sharing nature of God to us must pass through us and benefit the world. You know, they were, they were united together perfectly. They love each other perfectly. I shouldn't have said they were, they are. They are united together perfectly. They love each other perfectly. They, they are generous to each other perfectly and they extend it into their followers, his followers. We are called as the church to embody that, the generous, sharing, united nature of the Trinity. A truly Trinitarian church is one in which the disciples love people and God so intensely that they replicate that same generous, sharing, and caring spirit. And they unite together in the same example as the, as the three-in-one. This is why we talk about you know, one of our, our values on our mission statements over there. It says, glorify God, embrace people. Embrace people. You know, the, the, the picture of embracing is pulling someone close and being generous in love to them. A truly Trinitarian church refuses to hoard and turn inwards. A truly Trinitarian church is passionate about supporting each other in perfect unity. And so my question today, you know, for us just to ponder, uh, particularly if you call Hills Church home, is what, what do we need to give as a church? in the same way, in the same manner that the Trinity gives. You know, where are we not as united as we could be, given the Holy Spirit empowers our unity and, and, and our triune God shows us how that unity works? For each of us here, where, what does each of us need to give today? How do we need to be generous 
And these are the questions I want to leave with you to ponder as we close. I invite you to pray with me. Father, we've, as, as we wrestle with your word today and as we um, look to tradition and experience, God, I, I thank you that you are revealed to us. I thank you that your nature is revealed to us. And, and Lord, so that we can, we can worship you in, in spirit and in truth. And Lord, we, we acknowledge, acknowledge and, and honor you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our perfect, wonderful, triune God. And But God, we can't, we can't just live here without changing today. And, and, and I pray the truth of you brings change into our hearts today. So Father, as you and Son and Holy Spirit, as you were generous in your connection and, and relationship to each other, I pray for that same generosity to, to f- come into us from you and to flow out to all those around us. I pray as we, um, even as we fellowship after the service today and then as we go home to our families and friends and we go into this week, into our universities, our schools, our workplaces, Lord, may your Trinitarian generosity and unity and love flow out of us into others. I pray, God, that we will reflect who you are through us. But this morning, Lord, we want to acknowledge you and declare who you are, and we will sing our praises.